I want us to take our Bible this morning, and we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and as we do that, beginning verse 13, this is the next installment in the series Captured by Hope. And the third message in this, and the title of this message is Wholeness. Now, when you think about wholeness, you think about making yourself complete in some way, getting it all together. We're talking about bringing our marriage or being whole again. We're talking about bringing maybe our marriage back to wholeness or our business life back to wholeness after the virus is over and we get back maybe to a, some sort of normality of life. And so when you look at this, we find that 1 Peter is about preparing us for the trials of life. In order to do that, we have to have a sense of real wholeness in our life. Now, I want to read a couple of verses here in this passage, right in the middle of it, and we're going to take the middle and kind of go both ways. And so in verse 15, it says this, but as you who are called, God has called you to be holy. You also be holy in your, own, in your conduct. Since it is written, quoting from Leviticus, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now you think, man, what do, I don't need a sermon on holiness. I mean, the only holy people I've ever known I've tried to get away from. And so you think to yourself, the holier than thou. And you're thinking, pastor, what I need is some encouragement this morning. I mean, I'm trying to work at home, and I'm afraid about the virus, afraid about the economy, what's going to go on there. I've got family issues. And some of you ladies are saying, hey, you know, my husband's working at home all week. I need some help. Well, in order to have wholeness, you've got to have holiness. And as we look at this passage, we're going to find out that Peter is saying to us, what you need to go through when you're going through the trials of life, you need spiritual power. You need a, a dynamic prayer life. You need things going on in your life, the joy and the peace that is not only going to be, be bringing an advertisement to the gospel, but do something on the inside. In fact, what he's saying in this passage is preparation for the trial is vital. And the preparation begins on the inside. And so we ask ourselves the question, what, is, what does it, holiness really mean in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament? What, how does it relate to wholeness? How does it relate to us going through the trials and adversities of life and coming out victorious in our life? Well, as we look at this passage, I want to look at three things, the meaning of it, the scope of it, and the value of it. First of all, I want us to see what holiness really means in the Bible as we look at the setting beginning in verse 13. It says, therefore, therefore preparing your minds for action. It talks about a couple of things here. It talks about being therefore. What is therefore, therefore? Well, because of what Peter has already said here in the scripture, he's already said in verses one through five that we're saved. We can bank on that. We can come back to that as a foundation to life that we know, in fact, the whole plan of salvation is in the first five verses. We've been drawn by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's indwelt our heart in order to uh, make us more like Jesus every day. The Bible calls it sanctification. We say we're guarded, and so we're secure in Christ. Because of these things, we can bank on certain things as we're going through the trials of life. But really, this, therefore, really comes back to one phrase, one key phrase as we're looking in verse 3. In fact, maybe the whole book comes back to this one phrase, a living hope, born again to a living 
hope. Because we have that living hope within us, we know that God is for us. We know that he can bring a wholeness to our life. We know that he can bring meaning to our life. And so as we're looking at this passage, he says, therefore, because of these things, because you have a living hope, you need to live in this way. And if you live in this way, God's going to bring wholeness to your life, preparation to your life, that you can have real meaning and go through the adversities of life triumphantly. And so we look, first of all, at this definition. We, we look at what holiness is really all about. In verse 15, it says again, he says, but as you, he who called you, what did he call you to? He called you to salvation. So it's talking about the Christian believers. He says, he's called you is holy. God is holy. And so already we have that example of holiness you also be holy in all your conduct. And so it's talking about how we act, how we live. But then I want you to notice further in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourself. And so we're kind of puzzled here now. Holiness has to do with something that you act and how you act and how you live. But maybe it also has something to do with what you do. And so... Here we find God saying, look, God is holy. You're called to salvation. You're called to live as Jesus lived and a holy life. But what does that really mean? Well, we look at this and we find out that not only does it have to do something with the way we live, but also the way we act or the way, way the actions that we take. It says in verse 13, he said, prepare yourself for action. So it's what we do. Well, you look at the original Greek language, and we find out this word holy does not mean to act better. It doesn't originally mean to live better. What it means is live separated. It means to be set apart. For example, there are things in the Bible that are called holy. The tithe is holy. Now, the tithe, 10% of your money, is it, is it holy because of the way it acts? Because, oh, you know, this, this is holy money because it's clean, because it's pure. No, it has nothing to do. It's set aside for the purposes of God. In fact, there's clay pots in the Bible. Pottery is called holy to the Lord, certain pottery. And so you don't look at a, a pot and say, wow, this, this pot's holy because, my goodness, it's better than the other pots. No, it, it's set aside. A, a great way to illustrate this is... Um, my sermon, my old sermon file, my old illustration sermon file, I should say, um, has a lot of newspaper and magazine articles. In fact, it's filled with that, really. I mean, that's basically what's there. And what I used to do, I used to take a newspaper, and when I find, found a good article that I might could use in a message, I would cut it out. And so I would, it was necessary that I cut it out. Because in cutting it out, I could throw away the rest of that very large newspaper and put it into a sermon file. Same way with a magazine. Who's going to file magazine after magazine after magazine and then look through the magazine every time for that sermon illustration? No one's going to do that. No, what you do, you cut out those things out of a magazine. So my old sermon or illustration file is filled with old newspaper articles and old magazine articles. And so that's, that's an illustration of it. You cut it out for the use. Holiness means in the Bible to be cut out for, to be cut, cut away, set apart for the usefulness and for the service of God. And so 
in this, it has something to do with conduct. There's no question about it. And it also has something to do with how we live as well. And so God, why do we need to be holy? Well, God is holy. So do we need to be holy the way God is holy? I think the better example to this would be Jesus. We're to be holy as Jesus is holy because he lived on earth and showed us the way to conduct ourselves in the Christian life. On the other hand, God is transcendent. There's no way that we can be that. There's no way we can be holy the way God is exactly holy. But the Bible also says that when the Holy Spirit of God comes into our life, the Bible says he represents God in our life and he imputes or puts in, it's a good way to remember it, puts in the righteousness of God. And so because God, God is holy, God has called me to be holy, but also God has made me capable of being holy because of the Holy Spirit of God that he's put inside of my life and inside of your life as well. And so we read in verse, in verse uh, 15 that God is holy. He's called you to be holy. And now we find out that he's also made you very capable of being holy as well. And so as we look at this, we're called, we're capable. What does it entail? What does it all mean? Well, let's look back at 13 as we look at the scope of all this. We look at the scope of what it means to be holy and why holiness leads to wholeness in our life. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we look at this passage in verse 13. And for example, it says, uh, preparing your minds. Well, it's very important to prepare our minds, but really the King James Version of the Bible uh, really brings this out, I think, really, really well. It says, gird your loins. But we don't understand what that means, and so they translated it a little differently. But literally, it means gird your loins. Now, what is that? Well, girding is tucking. And so what the people back in the Bible times would wear are the long robes. Now I'm wearing uh, jeans today and a jacket. I guess that's kind of the way to dress when you're preaching today. But back then they had long robes. Well, you can't work in a long robe. You can't do battle in a long robe. And so what they would do, and this was a habitual thing, they'd get prepared to work, prepared to battle by taking the robe and tucking it in their belt. And so he's saying, do what you need to do in order to prepare your minds. And so we look at this passage and we understand that God is saying, look, there are basically three things you need to do here. The scope of it is basically three things. I'll give it to you in advance in case you're, you have to get up, go to the refrigerator or something, get something. Uh, here it is. What you, what you believe, it affects what you believe. And it all starts right there. And then it affects how you live and then it affects what you do. It's kind of a three-step process. But he's saying here, what you think, prepare your minds for action. Then he goes on to say, being sober-minded, what does that mean? Well, literally, it means don't be intoxicated, don't be influenced by intoxicating things. Back then, alcohol today would be alcohol and other drugs. Alcohol is a drug, so other drugs like, uh, you know, uh, marijuana or heroin or whatever um, uh, we have that's popular today. Don't be intoxicated. And that's what it means. But figuratively, and what he's trying to do in application is saying this. He's saying, don't allow false beliefs, 
false thinking, false doctrine to intoxicate your mind. Don't let it turn away. Guard, the Bible tells us to guard our mind, guard our thinking before the Lord. In fact, Colossians warns us, Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty conceit, deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, what I've discovered, and I know this does not cover all of our students, but uh, very, in very, very many cases, I've seen where a, a student's gone off to college, and while they were in school, they were under their parents' authority, under the Bible's authority, their church, church's maybe authority. And so now they've gone off to college. You know, they're kind of conning their parents a little bit. So, oh, I go to church every Sunday, you know, or something. But basically, they're out from under their authority of their parents. But in order to live and participate, maybe in the sin that they want to participate in, or even be part of the crowd, just simply part of the crowd, subconsciously, and I think most of the time, it is subconsciously, they think, how am I going to bring myself to the place of not believing the Bible? At least not believing all of it. Because, I mean, after all, if I believe the Bible, then I'm going to have to live by that. I mean, after all, Jesus died on the cross for me. He rose again on the third day. That's got to mean something. That has to mean something that changes my life. And so if the Bible is wrong in certain areas, then maybe it's wrong in the areas where I want it to be wrong. And so sometimes we work at not believing. We work at those things. So when the philosophy classes come along as a freshman, you're thinking, yeah, you know, you, you know, the professor says I'm stupid for believing the Bible. I'm ignorant. I'm not thinking my way through things. And therefore, uh, I just won't believe it anymore. Jesus warned about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so he says, beware of the false teachers. See, sometimes we think, that knowledge is all on one train track, as I said a few weeks ago. You're, you're on one train track, and the further, more knowledge you have, the more education you have, the more PhDs you have, the further you are down the track. And so automatically, you know more than I do if you have more degrees than I have. But really, knowledge is like this. Knowledge and truth are not necessarily the same thing. We have one track of truth, but we have all kinds of tracks going out from that, tributaries like in a river, going out from that that you can get off on. So we have a guy over here that's very learned, and he's way off here, and, and you're barely down the track. But the point is, you're on the right track, and they're on the wrong track. Just because a person has knowledge does not mean they have really thought through things. One pastor was telling the story of uh, a couple of college students that were part of his ministry, and they were kind of talking. And one student just told uh, the pastor, he said, you know, we don't believe that kind of thing anymore. You know, we just, we're, we're, we thought ourselves through all that. We've thought about it and the creation and the salvation and the miracles. And we, we really thought our way through that. And the other guy that was with him said, now, wait a minute. Actually, when you think about it, we didn't think our way through that at all. We haven't even thought about it. I mean, you know, all the questions that the pastor was asking was pretty obvious to, to that. So what we did when we went to college we began to say the things to our friends, what they wanted to hear, so we could be friends with them. They were believing one thing, so we would believe things as well. Again, we're, we're not, we're, we're not creatures, we are creatures of um, 
of, of our world uh, a lot of times. We adapt to whatever's going on in our world. He says, you know, then we wrote papers and we gave the professors what they wanted to read so we could get the good grades. And so we just sort of evolved from that, evolved away from the Bible. It's not that we ever thought our way through it. We didn't think our way through it. And we find that more and more in our society and other societies as well. People not thinking through. They, they come with a presupposition, and that is, I don't want to be dumb. I want to be part of the group. Or they come with a presupposition. I'm trying to find a way not to believe all the Bible. Believe the good, the parts I want to believe, like the love of God, love of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross, but nothing about living a holy life. And so he says, I want you to think. I want your mind to be prepared so you can think your way through and believe the things that you want to believe because what you believe determines most of the time how you're going to live. You know, you're, you're in a house right now and heaven forbid anything could happen, but if that house suddenly caught on fire and you were sitting in it and someone told you that the house is on fire and you didn't believe it, chances are, you might get up and kind of check it out, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't panic, you wouldn't run. But if you were convinced that house was on fire, you would run and get your children, your family out of that house. We are dictated, our beliefs dictate and lead us into a life of action, how we live and what we do. Well, it not only covers our mind, but I want you to notice also that it covers how we live as well. It says, set your minds for action. It says in verse 14, as obedient children, obedience, it gives the analogy of being part of a family. And as you're part of a family, if you've got a good dad, you obey, of course, your, your dad. When I say a good dad, I'm, I'm talking about versus someone that has left the house or beats you or something like that. But you have, you have a good, decent family. And he says, look, you are to obey your parents. Well, as we have physical parents here on earth, we also have a spiritual father, and we're his children, and we're to obey him. Listen, the hallmark of a Christian life is how we live. I mean, it is. Don't, don't kid our, we've got to quit kidding ourselves about that. That advertisement to the gospel is not going out necessarily that the great advertisement, at least, is not witnessing to people. That's the word of God. That's what we need to be doing, witnessing with our lips as well as our life. But our life is the advertisement. It's what gives um, the, the salt into the meat. It's what gives the salt for the taste and for the, to create the thirst for God. It's how we are living, and we're to be living a changed life. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says in 1 John 2, by this we know that we have come to know him because we keep his commandments. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. How can you be whole without being holy? How can you be whole in your life thinking I'm going one direction, I'm confident in that direction when you know that you're living contrary to what the Bible says, that imputed righteousness in your life where we're to walk the way he walked. How can we do that? Because we're empowered to do that. All we have to do is surrender to him. Well, when I was in school, um, I had a, a great revival in my own life when I was 19 years old. And um, I started following the Lord very, very seriously. 
And one of my goals is I, I joined a fraternity, a business fraternity as a freshman. And uh, as a sophomore, I really had this revival in my life. And so I wanted to share Christ with all of my fraternity brothers. And I tried to do that. And I witnessed to many, many of them, especially the ones that were hanging around the house, uh, the fraternity house all the time. But there was this one particular guy in the fraternity. And uh, he was a singer. He would go out and sing in churches, lead worship, gospel singing. He was part of a gospel singing group. And then he would, he would live like everybody else was living in the house. He would brag about his uh, sexual exploits. And he would go out and, and party with just everybody else. And people would always come back to me and say, well, you know, what about this guy? What about this guy? Listen, I, I would become a Christian, but what about that guy? He has no changes in his life. See, the hallmark... The hallmark of being a Christian is having that changed heart. Not just say, I'm going to obey these rules, but really having a changed heart that says, I desire to obey God. I desire to have the peace in my heart that forgiveness brings. I desire to have the joy in my heart that the presence of God brings to my life. I desire to have that faith in God that when I go to God in prayer, dynamic things happen in my life. I desire all that. I desire the Lord. I'm seeking the Lord. Not because I have to, but because the Spirit of God's coming to my life and I'm not trying to change my beliefs and going a different direction down a different road, different track, different tributary, but rather I'm staying on the path where God wants me to go. And what does that lead to? Well, that leads to doing other things, great things for God. I want you to skip over now from, it says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The passions, the desires of a life not glorifying God. But verse 17 says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your life exile. And he's coming back to verse one about the exiles and how the Christians were like exiles in this world because there's no home here. Our home really uh, eventually is in heaven. And so we are sojourners or strangers here. And as he comes back to that, he's saying, look, God's going to judge. What is he, what is he talking about? These are Christians that he's talking to. You know, we're not going to stand before the great white throne judgment and be judged for our sins. No, he's talking here about the fact that God just evaluates all through life but the really, when you look at the passage, when it talks about in verse 13, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming again of Christ, all throughout this book, and really 2 Peter more than first, the book of first, 2 Peter more than 1 Peter, it talks about the second coming of Christ. And so he's talking here about the judgment seat of Christ. And that is, we give an account of our stewardship. You know, here are the talents that God has given you. Here's the money God's given to you, okay? Here are the, here's the time. Here's the gospel. Here's the family. Now, what did you do with what you had to do with? That's going to be it. That's going to be the judgment. Now, this points to something crucially important, and that is this. What we do gives us a purpose in our life. It gives us a reason for living. It gives us a meaning. And so our belief system, our thought life, and, and then it runs over into the way we live. And so that completes us on the inside. That makes us 
whole on the inside. And then we become whole on the outside as we do ministry and do what God wants us to do, the deeds that he wants us to do with, which brings a purpose in our life. And he says, you do all this, what? Through preparation. We prepare ourselves. I, Howard Marshall, said this. To live by hope is to derive a sense of purpose out of the goal set before us. Now, what is that goal? Well, it's to be more like Jesus. In fact, the word holiness is also mentioned in verse 2 when he says sanctification of the Spirit. This is like a cousin word, and it means to be set apart as well. And so we're set apart for a particular purpose in life. What is that purpose? What is the meaning to your life? What is the purpose to your life? You know, if someone called you up and said, um, you know, Thursday, I'd like to get together with you. The first thing you would say, is, if you're, especially if you're a guy, is, oh, okay, what's the meaning? What, what is the meaning? What, what's the purpose of the meeting? What are we going to be talking about? So nothing. You know, I don't really have an agenda. I just want to get together with you for three or four hours and just uh, shoot the fat, shoot the breeze, hang out. And you said, now, wait a minute. You're thinking to yourself, I usually work during that time. And if I take that three or four hours off... That means I'm probably going to have to work on Saturday and be away from my family. Now, now tell me the meaning to this meeting again. And the guy said, I have no agenda. Unless you have something to bring up, I don't. I just, I just thought we'd hang out. And you think, I don't hardly even know this guy. I barely know him. In fact, a, a meeting with this fellow would be a waste of time. Just a total waste of my time. Now, let me ask you something. All right, probing. That is this. If you're unwilling to take three or four hours of your time to go to a meeting that does not have an agenda because it's a waste of time, then are we not, as we live our life with no meaning or purpose, we're just here. We're just living. We're just working. We're just playing, going through pleasure, going through all these things. Is that also not then a wasted life? If three or four hours of a meeting with someone you barely know is a waste of time because it has no purpose, then if your life has no purpose, no meaning, is that not also a wasted life? God says, look, I've given you meaning. I've set you aside. I've made you holy. I've set you aside. I've cut you out cut you out of the culture, cut you out of the rest of the world. And I've set you aside so that you can live like I'm living, so you can have the peace, hope, love, joy, and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit in your life as you live, but also what you do and what, how you're living has meaning. It's going to make a big difference in your life and the life of other people as well. And so what is that purpose? The holiness of God brings wholeness to our life. Well, you say, well, that's all fine and good, but uh, what is the value to all this? What's, what's the value? Why is it valuable to me? Notice it says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from a futile ways. That, that is a wasted life. You're ransomed. How? Inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. Not things that don't really, I mean, they matter. Silver and gold matters. The economy matters. The, the, um, the paycheck that you get matters, but not in compared to what he's about to describe. 
He says, you weren't bought with that. It says here that you were not bought with imperishable things. Ransom. Ransom means as a substitute, you bought something to buy somebody out of slavery. You paid a ransom for them. Okay? And uh, it has to go along with the whole idea of redemption. You've been redeemed out of something. Ransom has the idea of substituting. Jesus came as our ransom. The Bible says in Mark 10 that he gave our, uh, himself as a ransom for many. And he's saying that I've substituted. I paid a payment as a substitute for your life, for your payment. I paid the payment. How did he do that? But with the precious blood of Christ, verse 19. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, pointing to the Old Testament sacrifices here. And he's saying he did it with the blood of Jesus Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He's saying, look, it has value because of the ransom that was paid for us and because of the, vic the victory that came out. Look in the rest of this verse. He made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory that something might happen to your life. What would that be? That your faith and hope are in God. That's it. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that your faith might be placed in him to take away all the sins of your life. And then the hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ coming, that not only is that hope in the afterlife, but he says right here to make you holy right now, to work in your life right now, to give you purpose, meaning, and wholeness in your life. And the question becomes then, are we prepared for that? Are we prepared? The most important thing is, is the preparation involved. It is. One of my, my boys came uh, down the steps one time in our old house, and uh, I think he was in maybe middle school. And he was a very smart guy, still is, and um, didn't make the kind of grade that he usually makes. And I said, uh, did you study for this test? He said, yeah. I, no, he didn't say that. He said, I tried, Dad. I tried the hardest I could try. I tried so hard. And I thought for a minute, does he really know what that means? I said, now, the night before, you didn't study really for this test. He said, well, no. But when the test was going on, I tried real hard. But you see, unless you're prepared for the test, it's not going to work out for you. You're not going to have the knowledge. You're not going to be prepared for what the test is going to bring about. You're not going to make the best grade that you can make. You must be prepared. And when you are, what happens? Well, first of all, if I can just kind of throw this in, we're not going to, we, we suffer for sin. That's the reason why we have suffering in the world. We said that a couple of weeks ago, I think last week. And we do suffer, but sometimes we suffer for our own sins. Sometimes we suffer because we're living in a sinful world. It's just the way it is. Earthquakes and hurricanes and viruses, not our fault, but we live in that kind of world. But the Bible says this in 1 Peter 3.17 that we'll look at a little bit closer in a couple of weeks. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You're not going to suffer for the sins uh, that you could have committed if you are living the way God wants you to live. 
you're going to save yourself from so much suffering in life. And then we find that when we're concentrating and surrendering to God for holy, because we have to, to do that. We can't be holy on our own. We surrender to Christ because he lives within us. And we, can, we, we surrender to his, his knowledge. We, can, we surrender to his will. And he gives us the power to live that Christian life. But we also, in the midst of it all, know there's a purpose in the trial. If God has mapped out, set us aside for a purpose in our life, then he has even a purpose for the trial as well. And we understand that when that holiness comes about, that setting aside, that that wholeness comes to our life again, that our sins are forgiven, that our sins are no longer having sway in our life, that we're not thinking poorly, we're not thinking false doctrine, we're not, we're not thinking the philosophies of men. And philosophy, as I've said before, is really uh, theology without God. You know, if you, if you put God in the philosophy, it really becomes theology, the study of God. If you take God out of it, it becomes man's philosophy. It's the thoughts of men. We're, we're going to get the thoughts of men, and we're going to get the thoughts of the professors, and we're going to get the thoughts of books, but what about the book? When that happens to your life, wholeness comes to your life. Only when we are holy, set aside for God, can we feel the wholeness in our life. But are you prepared for that? That's the message of Peter. Be prepared for the trials of life by making things right on the inside with God. I close with this, but a few years, several years ago, we had a man in our church, and uh, they were visiting our church and um, because they were about to have a tragedy they felt in their life. And they came to church, and I visited them with them in their home. And um, what had happened in his life, this man in his 40s got cancer, went to the doctor, he got cancer in a very serious form of cancer, one that there's a very low survival rate for. And he was in the medical field, and he knew what was going on in his life. Well, he was, uh, he took all the chemotherapy and and, uh, uh, did whatever he had to do in order to what the doctors said for him to do. But the end of it, he came out of it and he was uh, in remission. And as far as I know, it's still in remission today after 10, 15 years of that. And he got into remission and the, and the doc, he, he said, you know, doc, doctor, it's really a strange thing. He said, all my life, I didn't feel like, well, the last several years at least, I wasn't in shape at all. And I got into my 40s and I thought, you know, I really need to get in shape. I, I really need a better job of this. And so he said, I, I got on a good diet. I started exercising. I started running or, you know, weightlifting, whatever he was doing, a lot of different things. And I really got in the best shape of my adult life. Then I go to the doctor and I find out I got cancer. He said, that's so weird. It's so strange. And the doctor said this to him. He said, what you came through, very few people ever survive from. But the reason you did is because you prepared, your body was prepared to come against the cancer. If you had not taken the time to be in shape these last several months beforehand, I doubt if you'd be standing here before me today. He was prepared for the trial. What about us? What about us? Don't we want that wholeness in our life, that strength that comes through that? 
that wholeness in our life and have that purpose in life. What do we need to do? We need to prepare ourselves by going to the Word of God, by saying, God, I want to live like you lived. How would you live? How did Jesus live? That's the way I want to live. But God, also, I want to receive my purpose in life. As I go out into this world, I know I'm making a difference, that there is a meaning to life. How do I know? Well, there is a meaning whether we receive it or not. Why, how do I know that? Because I'm a believer in Christ, and he has set me aside, cut me out, set me aside for a purpose. So the first question I want to ask you today, are you prepared for this life? Are you prepared to excel in this life, even as an alien in this world? And then I want to ask you the question, do you know for sure that you've been set aside, that you have been cut out for the purpose of God? That is, do you know for sure that you are a believer in Christ? You know, it's easy to say, well, I went to church, baptized as an infant or baptized as a child, teenager, and I went through this revival or this camp or vacation Bible school, but boy, there was really not that much of a difference in my life. And not only that, but I don't find any difference even now. I don't find the struggle to, to want to be set aside for him. I don't, I don't understand the conflict that goes on. It seems like to me it's, you know, hey, I, I got saved, I got baptized, I joined a church, thought I'd handle it. But it doesn't handle it. Because once Jesus comes into your heart, your desires change. You're going to want to live as he lived. You can't be perfect, but you want to. You, you want to just follow him. And you want to do something significant with your life for him. So are you saved? Do you know that Jesus lives in your heart? And um, as we close this message, I just want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ into your heart. Now, if you're a believer today, I, I just want to right there in your home just to say, God, I really do want to be whole in my life. And this passage teaches me how. Apply it to my life. I surrender to you that you would walk in me and through me and not only live through me, but work through me as well. But what about you as, a, as the person that's never received Christ? Or you're not sure you're a Christian. I want to challenge you right now to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud or right there in your home out loud as, you pray, as I pray aloud. And it's not the words of repetition, but rather it's just simply the condition of your heart. Do you want the Lord? If you want him, you can have him right now. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you that you went to the cross and died for my sins. That I have forgiveness. And you rose again on the third day that I might have life. I surrender my heart to you and your plan. I believe in your name. I receive Christ into my life and ask you to forgive me of everything that I've done. And then help me to walk with you. Help me to be set aside in wholeness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.